You're listening to Rough Translation from NPR. John Wong was a college student at UC San Diego when he enlisted in the Marine Reserves, the summer of 2001. He graduated boot camp the week of 9-11. That was a bit of a shocker. Like, planes stopped flying. Uh, the people that were supposed to come for the graduation couldn't come. His parents lived close by, so days later they were able to take him out to celebrate. I'm not exactly sure why they chose Applebee's. I think it had just opened up and it was just kind of like, oh, let's try something new. So there he is in his new uniform, khaki shirt, olive green pants, and he's flipping through that huge menu they have when another diner got up from his table. And just said, you know, I don't want to interrupt your dinner, but I just want to say thank you for your service. I kind of stammered out, you're welcome or something like that. I felt like an imposter, like I'm just wearing this costume. And it wasn't until the second person really struck in my mind because it happened not too long after that first person. I think we were still, I still had a menu in my hands. I remember he wore a polo shirt tucked into his jeans uh, for some reason. And this person actually put their shoulder, it was an older man, he put his hand on my shoulder um, as he was kind of leaning in to, to say thank you. John was 19. It was the first time he'd ever felt so on display. But it was also the first time that many service people around the country were hearing this phrase. Thank you for your service. It wasn't commonly said during Vietnam. John heard it from five different people in the time between salad and dessert. By the time that dinner ended, I realized that I was in a different world. That there was a difference between what I was with my military ID in my pocket and what people around me were. I didn't have a sense at that point. I didn't realize that I would never be able to go back to that other side. There is a name for the divide that he felt. It's called the civilian-military divide, the civ-mil divide. A while back, we asked you to tell us... Hi, Rough Translation. If you'd ever felt that divide in your lives... Hi, Rough Translation. This is Rough Translation. Hey, Gregory. I'm Gregory Warner. Hi, NPR. Usually on this show, we are telling you stories about cultural disconnects in other countries. Stories from far-off places that hit close to home. But today, we are doing something a little different. We are introducing a series of stories about a divide right here in the U.S. I heard your call out for the Civ Mill podcast. Which was a question I had never been asked before. How do you bridge the civilian-military divide? In the last 20 years, and two wars, only 1% of Americans have served. Which, if you just think about that for a second, these were some of our longest and most expensive wars, and yet fought with the smallest percentage of our population. When we asked you, our listeners, for stories of the Civ Mill Divide, most of the people we heard from were military, and you told us how acutely aware you are to be part of a tiny minority of people who volunteered for a job that most people don't sign up for. This is me. This is me. This is so me. I think we live in sort of increasingly isolated tribes in America. I generally don't talk to civilians. I just yell at them. When my husband decided to enlist, the response from all of our friends and family, I mean, it was shock, complete shock. People can forget that we've been at war for 20 years because they were never at war in the first place. The first thing I tried to do when I heard about the show was reason with myself that 
I've got to have some friends and some connections of people who aren't in the military, and I came to the conclusion that I really don't. The civ mill divide in the United States, how you're dealing with it, why it's there, and what it might mean for all of us. Your stories when Rough Translation returns. This message comes from NPR sponsor Indeed, a job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. Get your quality shortlist of candidates faster, only pay for the candidates that meet must-have qualifications, and schedule and complete video interviews. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Get started with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com rough. Terms and conditions apply. What happens after a police officer shoots someone who's unarmed? For decades in California, internal affairs investigations, how the police police themselves, were secret. Until now. Listen to On Our Watch, a podcast from NPR and KQED. We are back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. My co-host on this series reported for 12 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. He is now the VETS correspondent for NPR, Quill Lawrence. Hey, Quill. Hey, Gregory. So you pitched us this series on the Civ Mill Divide, and the series has a name. Home Front. And it's home slash front. So what, like, that's right. What does that, what does that mean? Well, the idea is that home and the front did not used to be so separate. I mean, times of war, anyway, everybody at home had someone at the front. I mean, you can trace that all the way back to the end of the, of the draft. The draft lottery, a live report on tonight. The director selective service is going to establish tonight. So every major war in American history was fought with a draft up through Vietnam. And when you have a draft, you have millions of families wondering if their son or their brother, their dad, their friend is going to be called up. And practically every American family is touched by the war. September 14. There are 366 Zero. numbers to select, Zero. one for each birthday in the year, plus October. one for... That all changed after Vietnam. Because now it's an all-volunteer force. It's a choice. It's a choice that very few people make. Mostly the people who enlist, they already have a connection. They know someone already in the military. It's usually family. And instead of being a shared experience for the whole country, it's become almost a family tradition. Which means that more than ever before in America, we have a kind of warrior class. I didn't come from a traditional military family, but my brother joined ahead of me, and I said, I'll be damned if he gets to hold this over me the rest of our lives. Bjorn Hansen is a listener who sent us this voicemail about being a reservist. I was told I was going to Iraq. I deployed 2007 to Baghdad and came home in the summer of 2008. Within weeks of coming home, we were being asked if we wanted to redeploy. He ends up going to war in early 2010, returning in mid-2011. And time to celebrate my 10th wedding anniversary. Here's the thing about fighting a 20-year war with 1% of the population. People like Bjorn end up deploying again and again. Which is such a different experience compared to our predecessors in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, or even the Gulf War, where service members so often did their tour and got out. 
In 2015, and then again in 2018, Bjorn got calls to prepare to deploy. He didn't end up going to war then, but he says he still feels the Civ mill divide every time he gets one of these calls. Whether he's sent or not, he finds himself mentally checking out of civilian life. And that takes a toll. The cycling back and forth by the same people is a burden that is tough to comprehend. Then there's Fernando Rivero. The civil divide to me is... He's a Navy reservist I know from Afghanistan. There's just fewer people that know somebody that's in the military. When he's not on active duty, he's a Hollywood producer. He told me this story from when he was single, but hoping to settle down and raise a family. I mean, be gone for six months or a year, and girls, by and large, were like, yeah, I don't know that I can deal with that. It was kind of a non-starter. If he was just back from his deployment... They sort of back off, you know, like... You had a disease, and I don't want to get it, or I don't really know how to deal with it. Like, sometimes there was just sort of an uncomfortable incuriousness. Like, I really don't want to know more about this because it's not interesting, or I can't relate to it. Which is isolating, you know? Isolation is something I hear a lot from veterans. They feel isolated and alone when people don't ask questions. But it's also possible to, you know, ask the wrong question. She was frozen. She looked astonished with the question. Then the conversation came to a screeching halt, and we all sort of looked at each other like, where do we go from here? My husband and I have had so many conversations about how challenging it is to make friends in the civilian world. I try very hard not to ask questions because I have learned that they will share what they feel comfortable sharing. Dan Price served in Afghanistan with the 82nd Airborne. So I was warned ahead of time when I was getting out of the army that civilians would ask this question. They would ask if you've seen combat, if you've been shot at. Dan has kind of a measured way of speaking about this because he doesn't necessarily want to give the true answer, which is that he never came under direct fire. If I tell him that it's that mild, then I miss all of the anxiety about going out on missions and then all of the sadness of missing family events. I mean, it wasn't trivial just because I didn't get shot at or I didn't shoot back. The majority of vets never got shot at and never shot back. It was still uh, very intense. And sometimes when I end up going into that, it makes me question whether or not I actually did anything. A random question from a stranger could make him doubt his years of service and his family's sacrifice. Just chatting with his co-workers could be a minefield, he said. Until he solved this problem of talking across the divide with a kind of PR strategy, he's got pre-packaged answers and jokes. When I get asked if I've been shot at, I say not by anything bigger than a rocket. Most of you who responded to our call-out were military. But civilians also told us stories of awkward, prematurely halted conversations. People on both sides seemed to worry what the others would think, how they might be judged from across the divide. Something that Rayanne Lambert thinks about pretty much every day she goes to work. I'm a civilian physician who works for the VA. And there are some visits. Um, it comes to the point where the patient asks, are you a veteran? And kind of dread that question because I know I'm going to disappoint them with my answer. 
because no matter how much they liked me or how caring I was, and I really do care, they, they're going to realize that I can't possibly understand. Or I can't really get it. That phrase, you don't understand. So many of you said it. Some civilians don't understand. You will never understand. People who don't understand. But at the same token, you have to understand. Some of you told us that that divide between civilians and military wasn't always a bad thing. Sometimes it could be leveraged for special perks. My name is Caitlin Sheehan, and I'm a therapeutic backcountry expedition leader for veterans with disabilities. I am a veteran, and it's not something that people assume because I am a very petite, very bubbly, smiley gal. Caitlin, she wanted everyone to know she's a vet. When I first got out of the military, I had a license plate that um, had one of the medals. It's one of those custom license plates you can get that says Veteran and Expeditionary Forces Medal on it. I got it so that I could speed with abandon and without any accountability. When she did get stopped by police, she could usually get out of a ticket as long as the cop didn't make a different assumption about veterans. The officer would ask me who owned the vehicle. And I would say, I do. And they'd say, who else is on the title? I just, I remember this one time this officer asked and I looked right at him and I said, well, sir, would you believe they let these ladies play military these days? And <laughs> he went bright red. And I think out of embarrassment, guys, as patriotism, you know, he, uh, he let me part without fine. Getting out of a speeding ticket sounds pretty benign. A small privilege extracted from the gulf of misunderstanding between civilians and the military. When Rough Translation's home front returns, veterans tell us about the danger that can come when that misunderstanding is exploited in more serious ways. After this break. Support for NPR and the following message come from Blue Air. With people spending more time in their homes, Blue Air's most advanced air purifier ever, Health Protect, is the only air purifier with germ shield technology that monitors your room and turns on when needed. Blue Air's award-winning air purifiers are designed in Sweden to combine high performance with whisper-silent, energy-efficient operation. Learn more at blueair.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Simon & Schuster, publishers of Freedom, the new book from Sebastian Younger, author of Tribe, War, and the Perfect Storm. In this thought-provoking book, Younger reflects on the nature of freedom throughout human history. From battle lines to picket lines to social movements, freedom discusses the tensions that arise between our desire for freedom and personal autonomy, along with our ultimate reliance on community for our basic needs. Freedom by Sebastian Younger, wherever books are sold. We are back with Rough Translation special series, Homefront. This is the first episode of the series where we ask you to tell us your stories of navigating the civ-mill divide in your personal lives. You told us how it makes it hard for you to talk to each other or make friends or stay rooted in civilian life. 
But next, we're going to tell you about a moment a few years back that people in the military are still puzzling over. A moment when the usually private misunderstanding between civilians and the military was thrust out into the open. It was kind of this thing like, well, did you hear that? Did he just say what I think he just said? At a White House press conference. Who are these young men and women? They are the best 1% this country produces. Most of you, as Americans, uh, don't know them. Many of you so this is in 2017, and what's happened is that four American soldiers have been killed in West Africa, and the, President Trump ends up making some condolence calls. We have some breaking news to report to you right now. President Trump finally on one of these the calls, he allegedly just told this widow, "Well, you know, your husband knew what he signed up for." President, to be so insensitive, which some people saw as really insensitive. And that's when Marine General John Kelly, who was Trump's chief of staff at the time, convened this press conference. Most Americans don't know what happens when we And he, he basically says, um, you know, I don't think most of you know what happens when one of our service members is killed overseas. Uh, their buddies wrap them up in whatever passes as a shroud, puts them on a helicopter as a routine, and sends them home. And he starts talking about how you... You pack the body in ice. Packed in ice, typically at the airhead, and then they're flown to use a Europe. So that's the process. Well, that's John Kelly is telling this to the White House press corps. Many of these journalists know that Kelly's son was killed in Afghanistan. He's a gold star father. He got that visit from a casualty officer. And this press conference is the first time he's spoken so publicly about it. Let me tell you what my best friend Joe Dunford told me, because he was my casualty officer. He said, Kel, um, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do when he was killed. He knew what he was getting into by joining the, that 1%. He knew what the possibilities were, because we're at war. I mean, it was just amazing that he spoke about this. And to a lot of the civilian journalists in the room, it felt like Kelly, in sharing this very personal experience of his own, was reaching across the divide. Yeah, I mean, he is trying at the beginning of this press conference. That, that's what it felt like at first. But then it's time for questions. So I'm willing to take a question or two. And Kelly makes a request. Is anyone here a gold star parent or sibling? Does anyone here know a gold star parent or sibling? Okay, you get the question. Thank you, General Kelly. First of all, you have a great deal of respect, Semper Fi, for everything that he, he says. Done. All right, if if you're a Gold Star family member, or you know someone, then good. You get the first question. But then, any other someone who knows, who knows a Gold he takes star some more questions, and it becomes clear that these are the only people he's going to allow questions from. Take one more, but it's got to be from someone who knows. All right. General. To this day. I talk with military people who say, oh, yeah, the John Kelly presser. They, I mean, they see this moment as a very dangerous precedent where a White House official says you're not allowed to question him if you're fully on the civilian side of the civil divide. I don't know if Kelly realized how this would sound, but some saw him as chipping away at this basic tenet of our democracy that civilians are supposed to oversee the military. At the end of this press conference, Kelly makes one more remark that seems to really dig in this divide. 
He says, you know, we in the military, it's not that we look down on you. We don't look down upon those of you that haven't served. In fact, in a way, we're a little bit sorry. Because you'll never have experienced the wonderful joy you get in your heart when you do the kind of things our servicemen and women do. Uh, not for any other reason than they love this country. So just think of that, and I do appreciate your time. We have to, as veterans and service members and military families, we have to reject that gut reaction, immediate instinct to say, oh, you couldn't understand. Kayla Williams is an Iraq vet. She's also an assistant secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs. When I first got out of the military, I definitely bought into believing that nobody could understand what I went through if they hadn't worn the uniform. And I came to reject that idea and believe that civilians have an obligation to try to understand. And that's the only way we're going to bridge this is to try to meet one another halfway. What Kayla is saying rings so true for me. I'm a civilian, I never served, but I cross this divide all the time. It's one of the reasons I pitched this series is to sort of show civilians and veterans This crossing is possible, and it's necessary. And so that is what we are going to be doing with Quill Lawrence on this feed for the next two months. We're going to tell you stories about ordinary people who cross into unfamiliar territory. I got no phone number. (laughs) I got no website. I have no internet. Who feel completely unprepared for the task ahead. And I'm a military guy. I don't squat about companies. I don't even have a business degree. People who show up where they just don't belong. I can't remember if she came in on rollerblades that time or not, but she had a habit of rollerblading down the hallways of the Senate office buildings because it's very smooth. And yet all of these stories managed to show us. I used to throw my best lines on Alicia. I told her I'd die for her. I'll die for you. It's like, you're a soldier. You'll die for anyone. (laughs) In a marriage, in a business meeting, in a war, what is possible? when we cross this divide. Homefront continues next week on Rough Translation. Today's show was produced by Matt Oza, Justine Yan, and Jess Jang. Our editor is Lou Olkowski. The Rough Translation team includes Carolyn McCusker and Luis Treyas. Additional editorial insight from Bruce Oster, Andrew Sussman, Bob Little, Liana Simstrom, Phil Carter, Jeremy Butler, and Susan Kashaf. The Rough Translation Executive High Council is Neil Carruth, Dee Dee Skanky, Chris Turpin, and Anya Grunman. Nicole Beamsterbor is our senior supervising producer. Mastering by Isaac Rodriguez and Alex Drewenskis. Retired Army Captain Kimo Williams composed Homefront's theme music. Additional music from John Ellis and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Candice Vokortkamp and Will Chase. And of course, thank you, all of our Rough Translation listeners, for your stories about the Civ Mill divide. I'm Gregory Warner, back in one week with more Homefront from Rough Translation. <laughs>